This program is a production of the Reformed Forum, an organization devoted to producing and distributing Reformed theological content for a connected age. Online at reformedforum.org. This is Christ the Center, episode number 228. Today we speak with Reverend Daniel Hyde about baptizing children. Welcome to Christ the Center, Doctrine for Life, your weekly conversation of Reformed Theology. This is episode number 228. My name is Camden Busey, and we have a full panel today, a very exciting discussion lined up on pedo-baptism. Let me introduce to you first our regulars. We have Jared Oliphant, who is Regional Coordinator for Westminster Theological Seminary. He's working out of Charlotte, North Carolina. Welcome back to the program, Jared. It's wonderful to have you on again. Thanks, Camden. Great to be on again. Sounding nice and clear. We're over Skype today. Hopefully our internet connection will hold up well. And if it doesn't, we'll edit it so it sounds like it held up well. (laughs) But anyway, let me uh, introduce to you also, we have Jeff Waddington, who is teacher of the congregation at Calvary Orthodox Presbyterian Church in Ringo's, New Jersey. Welcome back, Jeff. It's wonderful to have you on. Yeah, it's good to be here. Uh, You you shouldn't use too much humor because it causes me to break up. Oh, <laughs> well, Jeff, uh, Jeff is soon to be a doctor at, at some point in time. He's, he's finishing up, or he finished the last chapter of his dissertation, so it's from here on out, uh, small, Refine. small, yeah, re- refining, small potatoes, I suppose. So it's wonderful news, Jeff, and um, also Jeff's working on a Bible study in Red Bank, New Jersey. Uh, more information uh, can be found online, so if you guys want to hear more about that work and a potential church plant, we hope, down the road, then uh, get a hold of us there. We also have with us today Jim Cassidy, who is the pastor at Calvary Orthodox Presbyterian Church in Ringo's, New Jersey. Welcome back, Jim. It's good to be here, Camden. It's been so long since Jeff and I have been on the same episode together. I wonder if people are expecting or wondering if we're not, in fact, the same person. Oh, (laughs) it might be the case. Maybe a Dr. Jekyll, Mr. Hyde. Oh, because we have um, our wonderful guest. We're very excited. To, That's to, a segue. I know. It's pretty pretty bad. But uh, has nothing to reflect upon our wonderful guest, seriously, which is uh, Reverend Danny Hyde, who is the pastor at Oceanside United Reformed Church uh, in Oceanside, California. Welcome back, Danny. It's wonderful to have you on again. Thanks. It's been a while, and uh, it's always good to be at least uh, virtually, around a bunch of OPC guys. <laughs> yes, OPC, URC, we, we fellowship with one another. I believe we have the highest form of fellowship with your church, is that correct, OPCers? That's, that's right. Yeah, I think so. So it's wonderful uh, to be with you today and to have you on the program. We are really excited uh, and honored and privileged to welcome Reverend Hyde to the program today. We're going to be speaking about his book, Jesus Loves the Little Children, Why We Baptize Children, which is publication of Reformed Fellowship. And uh, we're going to march through that, but first we have to stop and uh, see if there's any news, any books, or any updates that we need to mention. Gentlemen? Hmm. Jeff, you had some news on a festrift. Is is that a secret? I don't know that it's a secret, but I mean, it's still probably a year off. Okay. Um, Might be better to wait until we're closer to publication date. Indeed, indeed. Uh. Well, we have uh, kind of closed off the conference season, uh, so so many of those things will be available now on um, 
download so you can visit various websites. Uh, I would like to point people to the Reformation 21 website, reformation21.org. We have a whole bunch of reviews. Uh, I've been working to collect a number of book reviews, and uh, we've tried We've been trying to publish one or two a week, so visit that website for updates on new books and reviews. And you can also visit our website, reformedforum.org. We've been working to um, keep you up to date on what's going on in the Reformed world. And of course, at this point, I do need to mention that Reformed Forum is listener-supported, and we would encourage you to visit us online at reformedforum.org slash donate to pledge your support today. We rely on the generous support, both financial and prayerful, of all of our listeners and viewers to help us to continue to produce and distribute all of our programs free of charge. We want to thank everybody for their support of Reform Forum and this particular program, Christ the Center. Well, I was really excited to uh, get a copy of this book. I've been speaking with uh, some folk over at Westminster Bookstore And there is a new printing, a new edition of this book coming out. I would like to mention, I believe that there's going to be a special. I think it's May 15th, but sometime next week, you can check out WTSbooks.com for a special price, I believe, a sale on this book, Jesus Loves the Little Children. So with that in mind, we're going to look at this book and explore the case, or a case, for pedo-baptism. A few weeks ago, we talked to Dr. Gaffin and Dr. Tipton, about uh, some more a detailed look into some typical arguments that are presented by credo-baptists. And today we want to provide a little bit of a precursor to that discussion, a little more of a foundational case, both biblically, theologically, and historically, for the case of paedo-baptism. Uh, Danny, I think we ought to start just with, with some basic terms and some basic ideas. Um, what is baptism specifically? Uh, and what does it signify? Sure. Uh, just to say, as a preface to that, that uh, th- this book was intended <clears throat> for the average person to a Reformed or Presbyterian church uh, that's never really been in a, in a Reformed or Presbyterian church uh, to give them some idea of you know why we do what we do uh, to show that we're not Roman Catholic. Uh, yeah. It's not a it's not a crazy you know wild harebrained idea and. Um, so you know, the book is very non-technical. It's, it's meant for the average layperson and really for uh, the inquirer uh, in a Reformed church. So as far as baptism, obviously, uh, I just had this conversation with a visitor to our church recently, and uh, I was trying to explain to them, when we talk about baptism, we're talking about water <laughs> mm-hmm. and not uh, baptism in the Holy Spirit. Mm-hmm. So I guess that's a thing that we might assume, but we're talking about the ordinance or the sacrament that Jesus instituted uh, to go make disciples and to baptize. And it's a visible picture of belonging to to Christ, his church, to the people of God. Uh, it's a visible picture of washing of sins. So the Heidelberg Catechism talks about uh, that we wash with water uh, to wash away dirt from our bodies in a similar way, analogous way. Uh, baptism is a picture of a spiritual necessity of cleansing of our souls. Yeah, that's really helpful. And, and likewise, we don't baptize with fire. That would be dangerous. That would be a little hard yeah. to do. <laughs> but it is important. Sometimes it could seem like um, a little too obvious for those of us that are that are you know dealing with these topics day in and day out. But 
There are many churches, especially in the Pentecostal tradition, that speak about baptism in, in several different ways. And, right. it, and it's not always clear uh, to people when you're making a case for pedo baptism exactly what you mean. In this case, we're speaking about a, a sacrament, uh, uh, an ordinance that the Lord has instituted in his church, uh, which involves uh, water. And we'll get into the mode a little bit later. But since I use the word sacrament and we've been talking about that, what is a sacrament in particular? Why do we use that word? And what warrant do we have for it? Sure. Uh, you know, sacrament is just a, a word that is dealing with something that's, that's sacred or holy, uh, a distinct thing. Uh, in, the, in the ancient world, it was used for an oath. And uh, in the Christian uh, understanding of it, the, at least adapting sort of a cultural Roman understanding of an oath, uh, it's a wonderful word to use because uh, the difference is that baptism, at least in a Reformed understanding, is not the oath that we primarily make to God, but it's God's oath to us, and uh, it's his promise to us. And so uh, it's a visible, outward, sensible sign, as the Westminster Larger Catechism describes it as, a holy, sacred picture of something spiritual and uh, inward. And uh, it's a word that obviously is not itself uh, in the Bible. Um, It's it's a Latin term, but... Mm -hmm. uh, it comes from the idea of a sign or a seal, and so you hear that language throughout the Old and the New Testaments of signs and seals and these sacred rituals that God has instituted. Yeah, that's that's important to know, um, and and it is important. And what you mentioned there in terms of it's God's oath to us, I think is is an incredibly important point. And the more and more I, I study and speak with other people about. Our, our view of the sacrament, I think that point is understated oftentimes, that the direction of the sign, so to speak, is from God to man, to the to the covenant community, rather than something that the covenant community does in terms of a dedication or a response to what God does. And that's an important point. Uh, I believe you mentioned uh, Romans 4, 10, and 11 on that, don't you? That's right. That's right, yeah. And, uh, you know, there obviously is a sense in which we do make a pledge uh, or an oath in both sacraments, baptism and the Lord's Supper. Yeah. But uh, that's that's in response to God's initiative uh, from from him to us. And so in the same way with, with Abraham, where uh, God gave him the outward sign, the seal of circumcision to be a, a, a picture, a seal, uh, an assurance of the fact that he was justified by faith. Yeah. I just wanted to ask Danny about... <clears throat> He had referenced that uh, baptism is a sign and seal of a spiritual inward reality. Is there any sense in which baptism is also a sign and seal of, let's say, a, a redemptive historical reality, a, a reality of what of God's particular acts of redemption in history as well? Sure. Uh, and one of the ways that that's expressed, at least in our tradition, is in our form for infant baptism. We have this great prayer that we pray uh, that, it, that at least initially originated with Martin Luther. It's called the Great Flood Prayer. And uh, we pray that prayer before we baptize children and adults, uh, in which the, the prayer is basically we, we praise God and we ask God uh, not to condemn us uh, in the flood uh, like he did with the unbelieving world and uh, to bring us through the Red Sea, not to destroy us like Pharaoh and his host. And, uh, and also... Uh, the, the prayer references Jesus' baptism in the Jordan. So 
there's a picture uh, of of our passing through the judgment and our being preserved, as it were, you know, in the ark or through the dry ground uh, in Christ. Yeah, that's great. That's great. <clears throat> that's uh, that's that's very helpful. Thank you. Um, my second question uh, revolves around the idea of the sacrament of baptism being a seal. Um, oftentimes, when you talk to our <clears throat> our good Baptist brethren, uh, they have no problems acknowledging that um, the sacrament of baptism is a sign. But then when you say that it's a seal, um, uh, they, they tend to, to react or to object because that is generally language for them that denotes the work of the Holy Spirit internally. How is it proper then, in light of that objection, to speak about baptism as also being a seal in addition to being a sign? Sure. Um yeah, that's obviously one of the stumbling blocks, and I, and I think there's a lot of misunderstanding about what the language of sealing is all about uh, in our time. You know, especially just given debates about justification uh, in reform circles recently, um, you know, federal vision and so forth. But uh, yeah, the, the language of seal, the Heidelberg Catechism says that the sealing aspect is that God is sealing or he's he's assuring the promise of the gospel, which is that God. Uh, forgives us for the sake of Christ. And so the the seal is not, you know, the guarantee is not, this is a guarantee that this particular person is regenerated or is elect or even will be saved, but it's the seal and promise to the whole congregation and to that particular individual uh, that when we turn from self in repentance and we turn to Christ in faith, that uh, God's promise is absolutely sure. At least that, that, that's how we've explained it in our congregation to people. And um, yeah, you know, people hear that language and they think it means you know absolute guarantee of forgiveness of sins for everyone baptized, uh, which you know causes lots of huge problems. Um, so at least the way that we express it is it's the it's the seal of the promise of the gospel. Uh, and it's an offer of grace, mm-hmm. you know, to that child, and it's an offer of forgiveness to the whole church. Um, so, you know, when we baptize, I typically encourage families with kids to let their kids see what's going on, and uh, also exhort the congregation that when we baptize, whether it's an adult, convert, or a child, that the the same promise that's made to the person being baptized is once again uh, presented and offered uh, to all who hear and, and who see. So. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And that, that really emphasizes the corporate nature of the sign, too, why we don't just do baptism in somebody's house. Um, you know, it, it, it's part of the corporate worship, ideally, uh, for those very reasons. That's right, yeah. If you could give just kind of uh, an overview on the biblical theological span of baptism as it relates to circumcision, a lot of times when, at least in my experience, when we have conversation, when I have conversations on this, um, people who are maybe not familiar with um, the Pado Baptist position just kind of have trouble seeing the connection. They see it, you know, maybe in a couple verses, but they don't see the the Pado part of baptism connected with circumcision as much. Can you describe a little bit about how you deal with that in the book? Uh, sure, yeah, there's a chapter in the book that deals with circumcision uh, and baptism, chapter 3, mm-hmm. uh, and just sort of lays out the Old Testament uh, teaching on circumcision and uh, try to very basically express that in terms of God giving that to Abraham, but then also um, just in terms of our interactions with Baptists, 
who typically see circumcision as sort of a merely an outward, merely a, a picture of you know promises of a land or promises that they are the outward people. Uh, we typically hear them say that in contrast to baptism, which is a spiritual thing. Um, so try to show that even in the Old Testament itself, even the law, for example, Deuteronomy, you, you see Moses as he gives the law, you know, once again, and he reiterates to a new generation uh, the Old Testament laws that God gave to the previous generation, that they use circumcision as a picture of the great spiritual blessings that they had. And the prophets do this the same, same thing, you know, calling upon Israel to have their hearts circumcised. So it was never meant to be just of, uh, an outward sign. It was not given for, you know, for cleanliness, you know, for hygiene. Uh, I heard that recently by, by a, a modern preacher say it was wow. more, more hygienic. Really? Uh, it's never, yeah, uh, it was John MacArthur actually. <laughs> wow. Um, uh, you know, it wasn't just a sign that they, you know, were ethnically Jewish as opposed to the pagans around them. But, you know, it was that, of course, as a, as a marker. But it's also a picture of a circumcision of the heart that they needed to repent and believe. And so that idea obviously comes through into the, the New Testaments. Um, but we also see that our children are included. We see, you know, that's all throughout the New Testament, that the household idea uh, Jesus embracing little children as, you know, to such belongs his kingdom. Uh, the promises made to you and to your children far off. Um, the the addresses in the New Testament letters to children. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, that, that sort of goes in with the covenant idea, but also circumcision. And, um, and at least as far as Colossians 2 goes. Oh, yes. You know, that's, that's always the big sort of, you know, the hang up. And that's the big crux uh, text of debate. Uh, and I deal with that somewhat extensively uh, in, in the book, trying to, ex- trying to go through that kind of phrase by phrase, verse by verse, to show the connection that Paul is really making. Uh, it's on page 20 and following, uh, where, where Paul is expressing our being uh, uh, baptized and being circumcised as, being, um, as belonging to Jesus Christ. And so there is an equation there. You know, there's a way that we get there, but he is equating the, 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 uh, the, those, those two things, circumcision and baptism. Yeah, I appreciated that that treatment, especially as I'm on page 20 in my copy of the book. Um, so people, if, if you don't have a copy of the book, grab one. But this, this is a particularly helpful chapter um, in explaining the redemptive historical shift and the reasons why certain arguments uh, that are coupled with circumcision also translate to the discussion on new new covenant, new testament baptism. Yeah, yeah. This is a, yeah. a particularly helpful section, and and, it, and it's a sticking point um, I found with with several Calvinistic Baptist friends that I have in in discussing the subject. This is often where the discussion goes. Yeah, and the thing about that that passage, Colossians two, is. It's not just that he uses the word circumcision or the word baptism, and because they're within the same vicinity, <laughs> they equal the same thing. That's kind of how I, I think people hear us when we discuss that passage. Mm. Just because two words are close in pro- proximity, they they equal. Um, you know, Paul Paul is writing there about what does it mean to be complete, to be full in Christ, and he's saying that. We don't need to add anything, any human traditions, even circumcision, to make us complete in Christ. And he says the reason why is because when you were baptized, that's when you are circumcised. And 
if you have been baptized, then uh, you you have it all. You've you know writing here, of course, to to those you know who are believers that they've buried, been buried, they've died, and they've been raised. And just like circumcision was a picture of that uh, in baptism, you know, we, we have all those spiritual blessings that can be offered to us in Christ. Mm-hmm. Also, keying off of the biblical theological discussion, I, I'm jumping a couple chapters here, but I was wondering if you could comment um, outside that, in the, in the history of the church, um, where did you see um, this doctrine flesh out in terms of, well, confessions, but maybe even before that, maybe in early debates? What was the development of this doctrine in the church um, how it was received and, and those kinds of discussions. I'm just wondering how much detail you go into and, and maybe if you can comment on um, the sweep of church history in this discussion. Sure. Um, I have a really short chapter at the end just gives a real quick overview of you know some key figures and uh, some key writings and places where they discuss. Uh, you know, there is, a, there is in some of the writings, um, Justin Martyr, for example, where uh, there is there is an equation of circumcision and baptism. You know, there's early writings. For example, there's a letter written to Cyprian asking, you know, should we baptize on the eighth day, just like we cir- the Old Testament saints circumcised mm-hmm. on the eighth day? And it's not just the question, but it's you know, it, it's the way they're thinking. They're they're assuming yeah. that they're that children belong in some sense, and they're assuming that. Something's going to happen, and so should we follow to the letter of the law, so to speak, yeah. you know, the Old Testament on that uh, with baptism? Uh, you know, and there's, there's obviously, you know, this is a big debated issue amongst Baptists and Paedo-Baptists in terms of the history of it and when exactly does it show up. And, um, you know, there's, there's not early, very early evidence, you know, outside of, you know, you know within the, the first sort of hundred years. But, um, sure. you know, like – one of the things that does suggest to us something of the significance of infant baptism is, um, which I just briefly touch on, is that uh, Augustine in his debates with Pelagius, the assumption is that there's infant baptism. And uh, August, one of Augustine's points that he makes to Pelagius is, well, if children are not born with original sin, well, why do you still baptize them? So even even what we would consider heretics in the ancient church were baptizing children. Now that's a little bit later, of course. <laughs> um, but even with like Tertullian, he's typically brought out as you know, oh, he taught credo baptism. Well, if you read him closely, he never denies infant baptism. He just preferred that people waited yeah. uh, because of the the issues. And there's a sort of a North African spirituality in the in the first couple centuries, very strict, rigid, sort of, you know, puritanical, if you want to use that term. Uh, and so waiting to be baptized was was seen as uh, much more, you know, pious and, uh, you know, you're more conscious, but he never denies infant baptism. So, mm-hmm. you know, there is something of an argument from silence where you never, you, you never see anyone arguing against infant baptism. And if it wasn't practiced, in the early centuries, and then it was imposed or introduced later on. Well, why is there no, you know, great early writing against it or some treatise or some place where it's shown to be false? Why is there no council dealing with it? Um, yeah. So, you know, there, so the long story short, you know, it's a very basic chapter that gives just a couple of things here and there. You know, there's some church fathers, commentaries and sermons and letters, 
where they talk about it. And, you know, there's ancient inscriptions on, you know, little burial tombs mm-hmm. where, you know, even children who, who die in infancy or at young age, you know, they're, they're buried, uh, basically assumed that they were Christians, you know, quote unquote Christians because they belonged and they were either baptized uh, or, you know, they, they died before they could be baptized, but they're buried uh, with sign of the cross on their sarcophagus and so forth. So, so it, it's a very basic chapter. And I know there's a lot of debate and there's a lot of, you know, scholarly issues, uh, but at least the chapter gives some brief flow of that. No, I really appreciated that you put this in here because other um, introductory books or, or books that you would just hand out to somebody in your congregation don't often treat the history. So this is helpful to have this section. Um, I would also say that John Fesco's book, um, Word, Water, and Spirit, I believe, has a, has a lengthy history section, which is, yep. al- which is also handy. Um, but since you mentioned original sin, I, um, how do we differentiate you know, the connection between baptism and original sin from what the Roman Catholic Church would, would teach, for instance? Sure. Yeah, uh, Roman Catholicism, of course, and I was I was baptized as a Roman Catholic back in back in my day. Um, mm. But uh, yeah, Roman Catholic Church would see infant baptism as washing away uh, the the guilt of original sin, which they would describe as an initial justification. Mm-hmm. And uh, but then because of the of concupiscence or you know this lust in our soul, because of the propensity to sin. Uh, you know, there's an ongoing struggle with sin, and so that that becomes the necessity for penance and all the various acts of contrition and and, and uh, forgiveness and confession and so forth that the Catholic participates in. And so they would see there is a there there is another justification, uh, you know, at the end after a life of striving to be faithful, and after of course a, a time in purgatory. Uh, so you know, we would see. Baptism uh, in no way uh, does the water itself wash away sins. Uh, And then secondarily, uh, the Westminster Confession has a great section on baptism uh, where it has that line about uh, the the blessings of baptism, the grace uh, and so forth that are are conveyed and and portrayed. They're not necessarily conveyed to the uh, tide of the time of administration. So uh, God can certainly regenerate. Uh, before, during, or after baptism, as one Dutch Reformed Synod once said. <laughs> uh, it's up to God. It's, it's the sovereignty of grace. But it's our duty and it's our privilege to administer the sign uh, of that, and we let God you know, do his work when and where he, he, he wishes. Yeah, uh, that's really helpful. And that brings us right around to the discussion of covenant, is when you— look at, you know, the, the covenant community's responsibility to give the sign. The question necessarily comes to who, uh, who should receive it. And um, how are we to understand uh, the connection between covenant and baptism, and why are the two so intimately related, such that when we get one wrong, we're probably getting the other one wrong? Sure. Um, you know, one of the things that I guess has really struck me just reading the New Testament and then interacting with lots of people. You know, our, our church is a, is a church plant, and, you know, for 12 years we've been welcoming into our church, for the most part, either new converts or people who are brand new to a Reformed church. And one of the things that strikes me as, you know, sort of the most um, clear expression of 
the covenant idea in the New Testament is the fact that Paul addresses children in Ephesians 6, Colossians 3. Um, so it's not, it's not the passage in Corinthians about children being holy. It's not, you know, the Acts 2, the promises to you and too far off. You know, what does that really mean? Is it a factual call? And um, it's not uh, other, other passages like that. But to me, the, the, the passages that show that the New Testament concept and there's a mindset that the church is a covenant people, it, it's a broad circle including our children, uh, including uh, household servants. You know, you see household baptisms, and no doubt that would have included in a Roman culture servants, mm-hmm. an extended family even. Um, but you see that, that children are addressed in Ephesians 6. Paul cites the fifth commandment as still binding, as still operative. Um, and, uh, you know, it's assuming that children would have heard those words read as the letter was read in a public way. And uh, it's assuming that those children are, as Paul says, quote unquote, in the Lord. Um, you know, they are to obey their parents because of that. And so that whole idea of a covenant, you know, although the, the term is mostly used in the Old Testament, you know, we see it in the New. But for the most part, what we see in the New Testament is the covenant idea sort of in, in practice. And you see it, you know, in, in reality. So, you know, that's sort of the general, you know, gist of it. Um you know, when we, when you kind of come to an idea of, okay, there, there, is, there is this idea of a covenant in the Old Testament, and you start to read the Old Testament, you, you see that God, God is obviously the covenant God, and um, in, in terms of the way that God interacts with his people that he takes to himself, that God never acts sort of separate from a covenant. There's always these covenants being made. Indeed. You, know, you, see, it, you see it with the flood explicitly and with, with Abraham and with Israel and with David and uh, throughout the Old Testament prophets and so forth. And then that idea, you know, God doesn't change. God is the same God and uh, the, the covenant God and the covenant idea and having a covenant people, again, we see that in the New Testament and um, – for us, obviously, there's a lot of continuity between Old and New Testaments. We see that played throughout, and we sort of we 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 read the Old Testament flowing into the New Testament. And unless something like the covenant idea or including children in the covenant, unless that's repealed explicitly in the New Testament, we see that continue. Um, you know, there are things I mentioned in the book. There are explicit things that the apostles say to us that are no longer, you know, in effect or they're no longer operative. Uh, we no longer have sacrifices, for example. Uh, that's explicitly repealed. Food laws, kosher food laws are, uh, we are free to eat anything God has made, you know, as long as we receive it with thanksgiving and prayer, Paul says. Mm-hmm. Um, the idea of children belonging to the visible people, the church, the covenant. And the fact that they receive some outward sign of that, uh, that's never taken away. That's never repealed. Uh, so, so, again, you know, from our vantage point, it might be sort of an argument from silence. But we, when we understand the, the covenantal continuity of the history of God's dealings with his people, you begin to see that, that that fits. That doesn't just make sense, but it's clearly expressed in various ways. Uh, in the New Testament, so mm-hmm. that's great. Uh, just, just a question, uh, Danny, about the the mode of baptism. Yeah. Um, if you could uh, 
perhaps talk a little bit where you go in the book with regard to addressing that issue. Um, I know that some of our reform Baptist brethren particularly, um, <clears throat> I mean, there's a range, right? Uh, you got some who are going to be more committed to the immersion principle yep. than others, but generally it's immersion. Um, to address a little bit uh, what, what you think about that particular question. Sure. sure. Um, you know, I, I do just briefly mention uh, that there are three modes in the Bible in which either water or blood or even the Holy Spirit are administered. You know, there's obviously, there, there are times in which there are things that are immersed. Uh, there are times in which things are poured. And there's also the language of sprinkling in the, in the Bible. Uh, you know, with the blood of the covenant is sprinkled or certain things are uh, immersed. Um, I didn't say in the book, I, I should have, but I once heard uh, a Reformed person say, you know, the, the only people that were ever immersed in the Bible are the enemies. <laughs> uh, <laughs> the you know, Egyptians? The Egyptians or the whole world is immersed. Yeah. Um, I didn't want to make that point. But, um, yeah, so I try to point out that, you know, in Scripture, uh, water and, and blood and even the Spirit is described as being poured out and so forth, that there's, generally speaking, that there are these three modes and, you know, we as Reformed people would say that the mode of administering water baptism, uh, the, the mode is a thing that's indifferent, that it's not the mode that is important, but it's the, uh, it's, it's the water and invoking the name of the triune God. Those are, that's the essence of baptism, according to Matthew 28, not the exact mode. And so I, I do deal with, you know, what does it mean when it says Jesus went down in the water and came out? Does it mean that he was dunked? Uh, or, you know, could it also be meant to to, uh, to say that he, you know, walked down from the river bank into the water and then came out of the river bank back up or out of the river back up the bank? Uh, mm-hmm. You know, so at least for me, there's more than one way to read those kinds of sort of, you know, he went in, he went down type words. Mm-hmm. Um, There's also questions about whether John's baptism is normative for New Testament baptism, seeing that he was the last Old Testament prophet, that we can't even, even if we come to an agreement about what those passages are saying in terms of mode, it doesn't necessarily logically uh, determine what should be normative for us in the New Covenant. That's That's right, right. yeah. That's right. John's baptism isn't Christian baptism, right. um, and part of the reason why is because, first of all, John's baptism wasn't in the, was not in the name of the Triune God, whereas yep. the Great Commission's Jesus baptism, Christian baptism, is in the name of the Triune God. So, yep. um, hey, Danny, I was wondering if you would address, um, if we have time here, uh, the the issue of the person who is administering the sacrament. I, one of the other issues of disagreement, not only uh, between Pado and Credo Baptist, but also within the Pado Baptist um, Fellowship, is the question of uh, uh, the person who is ministering it, um, and whether or not that particular um, uh, person either validates or invalidates the sacrament of baptism. I don't know if you give that any um, press time in your book, but I'm just wondering if you had some thoughts on it. Yeah, I don't deal with that in the book, but um, yeah, you know, in our, I I guess, well, speaking in the URC, and I'm assuming it's the same in the OPC, uh, but, you know, in in conservative, confessional, traditional, Presbyterian, Reformed churches, of course, it's a minister uh, who administers. uh, I think Burkhoff discusses this. Uh, you know what is what is legitimate baptism? It's with water, the triune God, uh, and by an ordained or duly ordained minister of the word and sacraments. 
Um, as far as you know, whether that you know invalidates baptism, uh, at least here in our congregation, you know, we have. You can imagine in Southern California, uh, the land of fruits and nuts. There's all kinds of ways in which <laughs> baptism is, is administered. So you get one of those picture perfect ones by you know a missions worker in the ocean. Yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> so we typically um, we what we've said is legitimate baptism is water with water, no matter the mode and in the name of the Triune God. And if a person who professes faith has come to us and has been baptized like that, you know whether it was in a jacuzzi or in the ocean or you know in, in a church setting and so forth. Uh, that certainly we would say being baptized by uh, a lay person, it's irregular, but we've never said it's invalid. Mm. Uh, and I know that there are those that would say that you must be rebaptized, and even in Presbyterian Reformed circles, that you've got to be rebaptized by yeah. a minister. Um, but to me, uh, you know, we've always seen that as just an irregular thing, and, you know, we can't reinvent the wheel. You can't go back and certainly. Um, you know, speaking for myself, I was rebaptized as a convert uh, in uh, in the ocean by my mom and dad. Mm-hmm. And when I then later on uh, went to Westminster Seminary out here and became a member of the uh, Escondido Christian Reformed Church, now the URC Church, uh, when I was asked in my membership interview by the consistory, uh, by the elders, if I had been baptized, and I said, yes, I've been baptized twice as an infant in the Catholic Church, Roman Catholic Church. And then I was baptized again as a convert, and uh, first of all, they had never heard that. They looked a bunch of Dutch elders looked at me uh, in, utter, in utter horror that I was rebaptized. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and the minister, to to kind of break the tension, said uh, he said, "Well, we'll just count the first one." <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> you know that's interesting. This reminds me of some debates. I'm I'm not uh, my uh, knowledge is failing me, but there was a debate in the early church. I, f- I forget the precise. Um, name of the group, but there were people questioning whether they should get rebaptized, not n- not because the first mode was invalid, but because the uh, the person baptizing had since ap- apostatized. That's right, yeah. And, and, and so they were wondering whether or not the baptism of, uh, efficacy depended upon the faithfulness of the one administering it. That, that was, I believe, the Donatist controversy. That's right. And Augustine would have been a part of that. Yeah, yeah. and uh, you know, the mode itself isn't different. What's important is water and triune God, and even you know whether or not the minister is converted or not, are holy enough, or whether he's consciously sinning at the moment. I mean, I think Calvin discusses this and says something like that, where you know there would be no that we would never have any assurance of whether or not we are baptized legitimately, um, in the same way as. Uh, he rails against Roman Catholicism's understanding of uh, penance. You know, how do you know if you've ever confessed enough sins or confessed the right sins? And so to me, it's the safest position just to say that ordinarily a minister must, uh, should, ought to do baptism. Uh, And if a person comes to us, you know, from a different tradition or, you know, comes to us and has this irregular administered baptism, you know, we graciously accept that. Uh, we don't repeat the error. We don't. We don't ourselves, you know, let people baptize their own kids at the hospital. But you know, we we instruct our people that you know this is why we baptize as ministers. We believe it's uh, the way that it ought to be. Um, so that that's kind of how I would answer it. Yeah, that's helpful. 
just another clarification, maybe. Um, is it ever proper for us to say or, or to call um, the event a dedication? And, you know, maybe if you could distinguish what is meant by dedication, um, maybe historically as well, but um, how, how, are we see, how are we to see those two terms, baptism and dedication? You have a sure. chapter on that. Uh, I wonder what you, what you get into there. Yeah, well, that's sort of the premise of my whole book is, uh, you know, writing, right. writing what I am here in, in SoCal and, uh, you know, lots of churches, mega churches, evangelical churches do practice dedication of, of babies or little yeah. children, uh, although they reject infant baptism. And so, you know, kind of the entrance way in which I tried to build some common ground between evangelical people and Reformed was to say at the beginning uh, that uh, the reasons why churches dedicate children are, are the same reasons, generally speaking, why we baptize children. And uh, it's been interesting to me as I've just gone back and sort of studied that and looked around and asked around that there are many large churches around us that have on their websites you know, a link where people can sign up for dedication and so forth. And the same passages, uh, Genesis 17 you know, Acts chapter 2 and so forth, This uh, Jesus embracing little children, the same verses that we use to support our idea of a covenant and, and baptism are the same verses that I found evangelical people use to support baby dedication. Um, um, you know, and, and what, that show, you know, what that shows me is that people, uh, parents, have some sense that their children are distinct from the world and something ought to be done. Mm-hmm. So that's kind of the general way in which I brought the book into play. Yeah. That, that's correct. Uh, I may be the only one in this group who was dedicated as an infant, not baptized. Uh, basically, I've understood the dedication to be a dry infant baptism. Uh, and the parents are usually uh, dedicating the child uh, to God and promising that they will bring the child up that's right, uh, that's right. in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. Uh, but it's 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 a halfway measure, uh, although we we want to honor the instinct, as I think the Danny does uh, in the book. Yeah, and recently I was reading through uh, Thomas Ridgely's commentary in the Larger Catechism, and uh, he actually and I can't find the page I'm looking at it right now, but I can't. Uh, but he has a section where he actually describes baptism uh, in, in 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 a sense as dedication. Um, it's in the section on, on baptism, but uh, at least that was interesting to me how at least one writer you know, yeah. from the 18th century was making some connection between dedication and baptism. Uh, and I do in the book describe you know, the various Old Testament dedications that are typically brought up, you know, Samson, and then later on there's, there's Jesus. Um, you know, and to kind of explain those away as not uh, you know, normative for the practice of dedication um, – so I do deal with that, and I try to use that as sort of a bridge to, to show people that, you know, if they believe in baby dedication, then, you know, th- like I say at the beginning, you know, they believe in infant baptism. They just don't know it yet. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's a great point, and it, it's helpful to have those, those points of common ground, and, it, and it's a strong case, I believe. I really appreciate this book, Danny. I want to thank you uh, for joining us today and for, for going through it with us. Um, it's, a, it's a wonderful little volume i mean it's it's just uh just about a hundred pages so it's it's not yep. intimidating to many people but yet it's very thorough and uh and and it 
treats the text and the history and the theology in a deep way. So thanks so much for, for writing it and for sharing it with us today. Sure, sure. Thanks for having me. I want to point everyone uh, to the various websites. You can you can read more about uh, Oceanside URC at OceansideURC.org. Uh, there you'll find information about the ministry there, Reverend Hyde's ministry, and, um, and what's going on there in Southern California. You can also visit uh, Calvary OPC and Ringo's at calvary-amwell.org. And, of course, you can visit us online at reformedforum.org, and there you'll find information about all of our programs and everything that we are up to. Uh, And subscribe to our feeds. We really uh, love it when people subscribe and get the new episodes downloaded automatically. Uh, It's real easy to do, so just visit us online for that. If you'd like to get a hold of us, just send us an email at mail at reformedforum.org or tweet us at Reformed Forum. I want to thank everybody for listening, and we hope you join us again next time on Christ the Center.